All right, turn to Romans chapter 5. We're back in Romans today. But before we get to that, while you're turning to Romans 5, I wanted to take a moment and actually address a question I got multiple times last Sunday after my sermon. Multiple people came up and and asked me. um, They pointed me to two verses. First of all, a verse that we read a couple times, Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Seems clear enough, seems simple enough, but then they would take me where? Where do you think they took me? James 2. James 2.24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Seems like a straight up contradiction, doesn't it? Are you justified by faith alone or are you justified by faith and works? They took me there because that is a natural question. It was a great question that they asked and it made me think, you know what, I really should pause for just a moment and address this question because it's so important. It threatens to undermine everything we've studied so far in Romans. Are Paul and James in contradiction with one another? Well, no, they are not in contradiction with one another so long as you define your terms carefully. You've got to define your terms carefully. You got to recognize the word justification. It is not a technical term referring to your salvation, to your life in heaven for eternity. Justify simply means to declare someone righteous. That's all that word means, to declare someone righteous. You have to determine the details from the context of whatever passage you're studying. And so for Romans 3.28, the context is very simple. It's very clear. Justification refers to God declaring a person righteous in his sight. That's what justification is in Romans but not in James 2. In James, he, in James 2, he has something different in mind. By justification, he's talking about people declaring a person to be righteous in their sight. That's what's going on in James. It's about what people say about a follower of God. When people declare that follower to be righteous and to make his point, James actually looks at the same guy that Paul does. He looks at Abraham, but he looks at Abraham at a different point in time than Paul did. Paul looked at Abraham in Genesis 15. When Abraham believed the promises of God and God declared him to be righteous in his, that is in God's sight. James looks at an event more than 20 years later. He looks at Genesis 22, when Abraham willingly offered up his son Isaac to the Lord in incredible obedience, stunning obedience, and James concludes, because of that incredible obedience, the key phrase in James 2, Abraham was called the friend of God. Called the friend of God by who? That's verse 23. Who's calling Abraham the friend of God? Not God. That would be silly. It's, It's other people. The world was calling Abraham the friend of God because of that stunning act of obedience. Now, Abraham had been the friend of God for over 20 years, but it was a private friendship. It was just between God and Abraham because it was just faith. The world can't see faith, so they could not see, they could not recognize that Abraham was the friend of God until Abraham stepped up in obedience. Obedience was required for them to see that he was God's friend and thus declare him to be righteous in their sight. So, Paul in Romans 3 is saying justification in the sight of God really is by faith alone. Obedience plays no part whatsoever in justification in God's sight. And yet, James 2, James' point, obedience plays a huge role in justification in the sight of other people. Other people can't see your faith. The only way that they can know that you are righteous, that you are right with God, is when you obey. So Paul and James weren't in contradiction with one another. They were talking about different things. 
Now, if you'd like to study that more, if you want to go in, in greater depth on James 2, uh, I'd like to let you know a couple years ago, I actually preached on James 2 on this issue specifically. You can go on our website under sermons, search for James, and you'll see Brian and I both spoke on James 2. You can check out those sermons. Also, if you'd rather read more about it, uh, we've got a whole article we've written on James 2, 14 through 26. If you go to downloads on our website, Leader Resources, there's a link there that says, what about James 2? Click that whole paper just on James 2. So uh, if you'd like to go in greater depth, you can go there. So now back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Well, for the last few weeks, we have been talking about justification. This key word, justification, God's legal declaration that we are righteous in his sight. Very significant thing, theologically, a very significant thing. But for so many believers, this legal declaration is kind of hard to connect with daily life. It feels kind of academic, kind of theological, justification, this legal declaration. We have a sense that it's important to our future, but what does it actually mean for our daily lives? What does it mean, practically speaking, for my life today? Does justification have any bearing on my life today as I go to work, as I go to school, as I clean the house, as I take care of the kids? Does this legal declaration matter practically to my daily life? Let me answer that question by telling you about another legal declaration that I have received in my lifetime. I shared with uh, many of you some time ago that despite what you would think or expect of me as your pastor, I actually have an arrest record. When I was a senior in college on an internship up in the D.C. area, I was arrested by the Secret Service for an expired driver's license. I was cuffed, put in the patrol car, taken downtown, booked the whole nine yards. A few hours later, I was released. A week later, I got in the car, happily put DC in my rearview mirror, drove home to Texas, and promptly filed to contest the charges. I contested the charges in my treatment with the Secret Service. Well, seven months passed, and I graduated from A&M, and I got a job, a great job with that same company that I had interned with up in D.C., I was super excited. I was finally going to get my life started. I was going to start earning a living. Super excited until three weeks before I was scheduled to show up at work, I received a letter from the District of Columbia informing me that because I contested the charges rather than pay the fines and my paperwork got delayed, it was still in process. In lieu of the fines, the District of Columbia had put out a warrant for my arrest. So... I call up the District of Columbia. I can't get anywhere on the phone. I am told that if I show up in the District of Columbia, I can be arrested at any time for an outstanding warrant, and I will not go to jail for a few hours. I will go to jail for a long time. Problem was, I had to report to work in the District of Columbia in three weeks. If I did not report, I would lose my job. And so now, rather than excitement and exhilaration, I feel stress. (laughs) I could not sleep at night after getting that letter. I was anxious. I was fearful. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was terrified. Until one week before I was scheduled to show up for work, I got a second letter in the mail from a different department of the District of Columbia informing me that the judge had seen my case and decided in my favor all charges were dismissed, the warrant was dropped, I was acquitted. Now let me ask you, did that legal declaration have any impact on my daily life? Yes, for the first time in two weeks I slept at night. (laughs) 
For the first time in two weeks, I did not feel stress and anxiety and fear in my stomach. I finally had peace because of that legal declaration. And I finally had hope again. I had hope because I was going to get to do my job. I was going to get to go earn a living and get started with my life. That legal declaration had a monumental impact on my experience of life. And Paul's point in our passage this morning, Romans chapter 5, is the same is true of justification. God's legal declaration of us has a monumental impact on our lives today, right now. Our experience of life as we go to work, as we go to school, as we clean the house, as we take care of the kids, it is massively impacted by this legal declaration of justification. Paul is going to share with us in our passage this morning two priceless blessings that accompany justification. Two priceless things that God gives us with justification. The first blessing that comes with justification that impacts our daily life is peace. Peace in the present. Look with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to have peace with God? Well, actually, two things. Two things, biblically speaking, that it means to have peace with God. The first is cessation of hostilities. That's actually the Greek conception of the word peace that's here in your Bible. Cessation of hostilities. It was a common word in Greek-speaking culture of that day. It meant the cessation of hostilities between two warring nations or warring parties. Well, according to Paul in this passage, that is exactly what we needed with God. We needed a cessation of hostilities. Look with me starting in verse 6. Paul says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. First thing I want you to notice from this passage is how Paul describes us. His descriptions of us before justification go from bad to worse. He begins with the word helpless. That's referring to our inability, our lack of capacity to do anything that pleased God. Before justification, we could do nothing but sin. We could not do anything good. We could not do anything to earn favor from God or earn our way into his good graces. We were helpless. That was bad, but it gets worse with the next word. We were ungodly. There at the end of verse 6. That takes us back to the second half of chapter 1, ungodly. Paul described all of humanity as anti-God. Before justification, we joined with humanity in rebellion against God. We raised our fists at God. That's what it means to be ungodly. That's bad, but it gets worse with the next term. Verse 8, sinners. Sinners gets to the root of the problem between us and God. The root of the problem is not sins, not the bad things we do. The root of the problem is sinners, who we are by nature. We were sinners. We were bad to the core. That's why we do bad things, because we are bad. We were sinners. That's bad, but it gets even worse with the last term, verse 10, enemies. 
That's the worst term of all. We were enemies. This refers to the enmity that existed between us and God. It was enmity that went both ways, enmity on our part and God's part. For our part, we rebelled against God. For God's part, chapter 1, verse 18, he poured forth wrath upon us. In other words, before justification, whether we realized it or not, we were at war with God. But then God did something remarkable. In the midst of that open warfare between God and humanity, God did something remarkable. Back to verse 6. At the right time, at the time when we were helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies, what did God do? He sent his own son to die on our behalf. He sent his own beloved son, Jesus, to take the punishment that was meant from God towards his enemies. The punishment, the wrath that God was sending forth upon his enemies, Jesus stepped in our place and took that punishment for us. We studied that a few weeks ago with that key word. What was that word? Propitiation. It meant that Jesus stood in our place to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what the cross is about. Jesus going on the cross to take upon himself the wrath, the punishment of God that was meant for us. He took our wrath in our place so that we could have peace with God. And and what motivated him to do that? What motivated Jesus to step in our place, to take the arrow of God's wrath for us? Well, Paul tells us in verse 8, love. What motivated God to send his son was love. This is actually the first time that the word love appears in the book of Romans. As Paul describes what it is that motivated this incredible act of self-sacrifice, it's God's love. And And Paul wants us to appreciate the depth of God's love for us expressed through Jesus. So he compares it to the the ultimate expression of human love. The ultimate expression of love between human beings is is self-sacrifice. You give your life in behalf of of someone you care about. And Paul says, uh, you would hardly do it for a righteous man, but perhaps, maybe, you would die for a good man, one who who has been good to you, a person who has been loyal to you. That's, That's rare, but we do see that on occasion, especially in the military. When a soldier jumps on a grenade or takes a bullet to protect his fellow soldiers, that's like the ultimate expression of love. We, we reward that with our highest honors. That's like Congressional Medal of Honor kind of stuff. When a soldier gives his life for his fellow soldiers, that's the ultimate expression of human love. And yet, Paul tells us, that is nothing compared to God's love. That can't even come close to comparing to God's love in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus did not die for a good man. Jesus did not die for a friend. Jesus did not die for a family member. Jesus did not die for a fellow soldier. Who did Jesus die for? The enemy. To follow our analogy, Jesus jumped on a grenade, not for his fellow soldiers, but for the terrorists on the other side of the lines. The grenade of wrath that was meant for us because we were terrorists against God, rebels against God, the grenade of wrath that was meant for us, Jesus willingly jumped on it in our place. That is the ultimate expression of love ever given. Jesus died not for his friends, but for his enemies. And because of that monumental love, that monumental sacrifice, we who were enemies of God can now be made friends. We can now have peace with God. That's Paul's point in verse 10. He uses a synonym to the word peace, the word reconciled. 
Because of the death of Christ, we have been reconciled to God. Reconciliation, it means to bring together or make peace between two estranged or hostile parties. That's what's happened because of the death of Christ. We have been reconciled to God. Paul uses that same word in 1 Corinthians 7 about the the reconciliation, the restoration that God wants to bring after divorce. When two married people separate from one another, God desires to bring them back and unite them back in love. That's reconciliation. That's what God does through Jesus with us. We who were enemies are brought back to God and bound to him in love. Paul makes that point in Colossians 1. 21 through 22, he says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet Jesus has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We were hostile. We were alienated. We were God's enemies. We were separated from him. But now we have been brought near to God through the death of Jesus. So the first thing that peace means for us is a cessation of hostilities between us and God. We are no longer God's enemies because of the death of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that peace means, but that's not the only thing it means. Peace in the Bible doesn't just mean cessation of hostilities. It also means access to God's grace. That's actually the Jewish conception of peace. The Jewish word peace in the Old Testament in Hebrew is the word shalom. It's a word that Jews use even today when they greet one another, shalom. Shalom means access into God's blessings. Shalom means not only that you are are reconciled to God, but that you experience and enjoy all of God's blessings, all of God's grace, the fulfillment of all of his promises. You see, shalom promised all through the Old Testament. Just a couple passages, Ezekiel 34. I will make a covenant of shalom, of peace with them, and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them in the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure on the land. Point of this passage is God is promising peace just doesn't mean that we won't be enemies. Peace means that I will pour forth showers of blessing upon you. You will receive nothing but grace from me. Same point in Isaiah. Isaiah 32. And the work of righteousness or the result of righteousness will be shalom, peace. And the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. When God means peace, he means that you are enjoying his security, his provision, his promises, his blessing. That's what shalom means. And that's what Paul has in mind in verse 2. Look with me at the beginning of verse 2, just the first half of it. Paul says, through whom, that is through Jesus also, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. A number of key words here. We have obtained our introduction, or better translated, our access. Through Jesus, we have obtained access into what? Into God's grace. That word means God's undeserved favor, his unmerited blessings. In that grace, we now stand. That's an interesting way that Paul chose to describe grace. You stand in grace. What does that mean? He's, he's picturing grace almost like a room that you're standing in. You now stand in a room that is designated the grace of God. I think Paul's picturing it this way. 
It's like if you were standing in the throne room of, of a good and great king. Now, before justification, you weren't standing in his throne room. You actually weren't standing in his castle. Actually, you were standing with his enemies. You were part of the the army of rebels who were launching war against this good and great king. And because you stood with his enemies, you stood in the place where the king's wrath fell, where his punishment fell. But through reconciliation, through what Jesus has done, you have been brought out of God's enemies, out of the king's enemies, and transferred all the way, not just into the king's castle, but into the king's throne room. You are now a friend of God. You are part of his family here in the throne room, the place where his favor dwells, the place where he blesses people, the place where his grace exists. You stand always now in the grace of God. Paul puts it this way later in the book, Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God has already made the ultimate sacrifice, giving that which is of most value, Jesus Christ, for you, how can you not count on him to give you everything that you need, to give you all the grace, all the blessings, all the help you need in life? You now stand in the place of God's favor. So when Paul says that we now, through justification, have peace, he doesn't just mean cessation of hostilities. We are no longer God's enemies. That's true, but it means more than that. We now stand in the place of God's grace. We are constant recipients of God's favor forever. Now that's really great news, but unfortunately for so many believers, it's so hard to believe. So many believers live as if this isn't true. Even though they are at peace with God and stand under God's grace, they live as if it isn't true. I want you to think for a moment. How do you conceive of God? If you had to picture God in your mind, how do you conceive of him? When you think about God looking at you right now, what expression do you see on his face? For a lot of believers, how they conceive of God is like this. Like a stern judge who has a face of disappointment when he looks at you. He's ready to throw the book at you whenever you sin. Or for others, it's like this. God is the referee. He's just waiting to blow that whistle when you mess up and put you in the penalty box. For so many of us, that's how we conceive of God, a judge or a referee who who must be satisfied, who must be appeased. When we sin, we don't only confess our sins, but we require penance of ourselves. We have to punish ourselves on his behalf because that's what he must expect. We don't live as if we have peace. But Paul says, no, no, God is not a hockey ref. God is not a judge towards us. We stand in God's grace. God's face towards you is always gracious. If you want to know what is it God's expression, what is on his face as he looks at you right now, the answer is always the same and will always be the same for all eternity. If you are justified, then God's face towards you is grace. It is love, always, forever. Even when you sin, when you sin, God convicts you and he disciplines you, but not as judge, not as referee, as loving father, who is leading you in goodness and grace towards better days. God's face towards you is always grace. No matter what you ever do in the future, that will never change. He is not judge. He is not referee. 
That's why author of the book of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter four, verse 16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is always welcoming us into his presence. There is no penance we have to do. He wants us to draw near to him. He wants to shower his grace upon us to give us everything we need for life. You stand in God's grace. That's what peace means. Not just that you're no longer his enemies, which is true and important, but even more than that, you now stand in the place of God's unending favor. His face towards you is always grace. That's the first thing that justification means. Every moment of every day, you stand in God's grace. Second thing, second blessing that comes with justification is hope. Hope in the future. Look with me. Back at verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now that word exult is a little bit funny. It's actually the word boast. It's the same word you saw back in chapter 4, verse 2. We talked about it a week ago, that word that was really, really negative, boast. There it talks about how when we add works to justification, it leads to pride. It leads us to boast in ourselves and our accomplishment, and God does not like that. He is opposed to boasting in self, but Paul's point here is actually boasting in and of itself is not bad, so long as you boast in the right things. It is good to boast, to have pride, to exult if you are boasting in hope. Now, what is hope? What does it mean to have hope? When we hear that word in English, what does hope mean in English? Well, it means basically wishful thinking. Hope in English is is you wish for something to happen. You don't know whether it'll happen or not, but it'd be good if it did. Hope in English is like hope of a promotion. Hope you get a promotion. Hope you, you get a date this weekend. Hope you win the lottery. Stuff that would be good if it happens, but you can't count on it because it's based on probabilities and luck. Well, that's not biblical hope. The word hope in the Bible does not mean wishful thinking. The word hope in the Bible means confident expectation because biblical hope is not based on probability or luck. Biblical hope is always based on the promises of God. And as such, biblical hope is as reliable as God is reliable. God is infinitely reliable. So biblical hope is infinitely reliable. Biblical hope is hope you can count on. It's the hope uh, that you see on the faces of engaged people. When two people get engaged, uh, what is the expression on their face most of the time? Most of the time, it's happiness. Most of the time, they are smiling. Now, that is in spite of the fact that for those who you have been through it, you know this, engagement is really hard. Engagement is marriage without the benefits. When, when I got engaged to my, my, the woman I am now married to, Julie, uh, one of my best friends called me and said, well, Blake, welcome to purgatory. Because that's what engagement is. It is an incredibly hard time. So why do engaged people always smile? Because they have biblical hope. Not wishful thinking, but confident expectation that better days are coming. That's biblical hope. Confident expectation. Now, what is it that Paul wants us to have hope in? What are we having confident expectation of? Well, two things according to this passage. First, verse 9, we have confident expectation of salvation from wrath. Look at verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. 
This is talking about God's future wrath against sinners. It's talking about the moment in time in the future when God shows up in our universe and sits on his great white throne. That's what the book of Revelation talks about. God sitting on the great white throne. And from the great white throne, God is going to judge all people who were not justified by faith. Everyone who rejected the gospel will stand before the great white throne, and because they did not respond in faith, they will be judged based on works. And whenever God judges a person for righteousness based on works, the outcome is always negative because none of us can measure up to his standard. So all people before the great white throne will be condemned and then will be sentenced to an eternity of wrath. That's what we call hell. It is God's wrath poured out for all eternity upon those who did not accept the gospel. They were judged based on their works and found lacking. But that's not something we have to fear. You will not stand before the great white throne if you have been justified. If you have trusted that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead on your behalf, then you will be saved from the great white throne judgment. You will not stand before it. You will not be judged. You will not face wrath. It's a point Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has a better destiny in mind for us. We will be saved from the great white throne. We will be delivered into God's presence. We have nothing to fear when we die. There's nothing to be anxious about. There's nothing to worry about in the next life. God promises he will deliver you from wrath. You will not face punishment. You will spend eternity with him. That's the first thing that we have confident expectation of, that God in the future will save us from wrath. Second, not only will he save us from wrath, but he will also restore us to glory. That was the point back in verse two, at the end of verse two, we exult in hope of the glory of God. Glory of God. What is the glory of God? What does that phrase mean? Well, the glory of God is the revelation of God's perfections. That's what the idea of glory means. When you say glory of God, it's the revelation or manifestation of God's perfections to creation. Now, according to Genesis chapter 1, we human beings were actually designed to be the glory of God. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Human beings, we are uniquely made in the image of God to be his glory reflectors to creation, to reflect his perfections to all of creation. That was why God made you. That's what human beings were made to do, reflect God's glory, but then the problem of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. We forfeited that glory for the sake of sin. But good news, God didn't give up on us. God began the process of restoring us to glory. He's already begun that process in your life through justification. That's step one of restoration. First step, legal declaration. He declares you to be righteous. That's the beginning of God's glorification of you, restoring you to glory, restoring you to perfection. That process will be completed in the day of your resurrection. Resurrection is the completion of glorification. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What Paul is saying is on that future day of your resurrection, everything about you will be perfect. You will be absolutely restored to the perfect glory of God. You will be perfect in spirit. You will no longer sin, not ever. You will not even be tempted. 
You will not hurt other people. You will never get into giving in again to selfishness or pride or lust. You will be perfect morally, but you will also be perfect physically. Your body will be perfected. You will never again experience sickness, pain, sadness, depression, death. All of that will be in the past. You will be made right once again. That's the hope that we have. Not only that God is going to save us from wrath, but that he's going to make everything right. He's going to make everything as it was meant to be back in the garden. You will be made perfect for all of eternity. That's what it means to be restored to the glory of God. That's the hope that we have, not just salvation from wrath, but hope of restoration into God's glory, all things right in our life once again. That's the hope that we have. Paul wants us to understand those things that we hope in, and then he also wants us to understand about this hope, that this hope in salvation and in restoration, this hope is guaranteed. That's his point in verses 5 and verse 10. Look first at verse 10. This hope we have in salvation and glorification is guaranteed. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. His point is God has already done the heavy lifting of salvation for you. He gave up his own son to die for you so that you could be justified. That was the big step of salvation. That was the heavy lifting of saving you. It's already done. And so you can count on God to do the easy part. Glorification, that's nothing compared to this. Because God has done the heavy lifting, you can count on him to do the rest. It goes like this. The logic is something like this. When Julie and I go uh, to visit her parents in Dallas and we take the kids, uh, it is really hard to get the kids' stuff up to their room. Uh, Julie's parents live in a two-story house, and for those of you who are parents of young kids, you know kids travel heavy, um, really heavy, so much junk. And, and, and I get to their house, and I'm excited, but I know there's a big task that awaits me. I have to get all my kids' junk up my, my in-laws' stairs, and it's a, a really thin staircase with a turn, and it's got a, a child gate at the front and at the, at the end of it, and so I have to get over those child gates and carry all this stuff up, and so finally I make it all the way up the stairs, and then all I have to do is walk five feet and put the stuff down in their rooms. What, do you think I'm going to stop at the top of the staircase and leave their stuff there? Well, no. I've done the heavy lifting. I've gotten up the staircase. I think I can do the last five feet on my own and finish the job. Paul's point is the same. God has done the heavy lifting. He's taking you up the staircase by sacrificing his son for you. You can kind of count on him to finish the job. He's going to go those last five feet and glorify you because that's easy for him. Your salvation and glorification are guaranteed because God's already done the heavy lifting. He's already done the big thing. That's what leads Paul in verse 5 to say, this hope will not disappoint. This hope will not disappoint. You can bank on this hope. You will not get to the future and be disappointed by this hope. It's guaranteed to fulfill you because God has already evidenced his infinite love for you by giving up his own son on your behalf. This thing that you hope in, your salvation and glorification, is guaranteed. That's the first thing Paul tells us about this hope. The second thing he tells us is that it is unconquerable. Unconquerable hope. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. Paul's talking about tribulations. We boast in our tribulations. We boast in our suffering. Now, um, that's contrary to conventional wisdom. 
According to this world, if a person is hopeful, a hopeful, optimistic person, and then they enter a time of trial, of, of suffering, of pain, what does the world expect to happen? We expect their hopes to be crushed. They're going to be realistic people now. Their hope is going to be crushed. But Paul's telling us if you're a believer, then actually when you enter into times of suffering, it works the opposite way. Suffering in your life does not crush your hopes. It actually grows your hopes. It strengthens your hopes. And here's how. It's a three-step process. When you enter into times of tribulation, it builds endurance. That, that word endurance, it means stick to It's the quality that a great marathon runner has, that they don't slow down after mile 12. They don't slow down after mile 20. They run hard all the way through the tape. That's endurance, marathon kind of endurance. When you enter into suffering, that's what God does with the suffering is he builds that marathon runner kind of endurance in your life. And that endurance leads to step two. That endurance results in proven character. Now, proving character, how do you prove character? Well, you can't prove character over a short amount of time. Anybody can be godly for a day. How do you prove character? Well, through consistency over the long haul. Character is proven when a guy walks with the Lord for decades. That's what separates the men from the boys in the spiritual life is consistency over time. You prove your character by walking with the Lord for decades, and the only way you're going to do that is through endurance. That's by definition. You can't walk with the Lord for decades unless you have marathon runner kind of endurance in your spiritual life. So this growth of endurance allows us to prove our character over the long years and decades of our life. And that results in step three, hope. Hope grows. It builds hope. Proven character results in hope. Here's Paul's logic. As as your character is proven to yourself and to the world, it shows everyone that God really has saved you that God really has justified you, and that God really is now working in your life. As your character is proven over the long decades of your life, it shows you that God really does exist, that he really is doing something amazing in your life as God grows you in the face of sin, as he grows you in obedience, as he grows you in love and in, in humility. You look at that and you see, man, God does exist. He's working in my life. He's already at work, so how can I not count on him to finish the job? Suffering brings an opportunity for endurance to grow, which proves your character, which builds your hope. It solidifies, it proves that your hope is not baseless. Your hope will be satisfied. God will finish the job he started in you. I want you to notice how, how, how that spiral works. Hope begets more hope. Hope in the face of suffering grows hope in the future. Now that assumes that you're responding right to suffering, that you're not responding to your suffering by growing bitterness. You're responding to your suffering in hope. If you do that, if you respond to suffering in hope, then God promises he will use that as an opportunity to take your hope even further. I think what Paul is picturing here is that in your life, hope is a muscle. Hope is a muscle, and muscles grow by being stretched, by being broken down, by being strained. That's how hope grows. Hope doesn't grow when life is easy. It grows when life is hard. That's the counterintuitive part, what the world doesn't understand. Hope grows through suffering. Hope is unconquerable. So, just to draw all this together, Paul wants us to understand This declaration of justification, this legal thing, it's not just a piece of theology, it's not just academic, it has monumental impact on your daily life. Every moment of every day, it gives you peace. 
peace, not just cessation of hostilities with God. It gives you access to God's grace. Because you are justified every moment of every day, you stand under God's favor. His face towards you is gracious. He is pouring forth his blessings upon you because of justification. And second, it brings forth hope. Every moment of every day, you can live with true, meaningful hope in the future. Because your hope is certain. Your future is certain. It's guaranteed. God is going to save you from wrath, and he's going to make everything about you right. He is going to restore you to glory and perfection. That's your hope. Justification has a major impact on our lives, and that leads us to the final application of this morning, gratitude. Gratitude. That's how we should respond to this passage. God has given you what everyone on this planet is looking for, peace and hope. If you asked anybody, that's pretty much what every person on the planet wants right now is true, meaningful, lasting peace and hope, and you have it as a free gift forever. That's a cause for gratitude. God has given it to us for free, unconquerable, lasting peace and hope. So let's go to him in gratitude if you'll pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we wish to say thanks. We wish to say thank you. Thank you for the gift that you have given us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that we were your enemies. We had rebelled against you, every person in this room, myself included. We had all rejected you. We were all worthy of your wrath, Lord. And yet in grace, as a free gift, you have reconciled us to you. You have brought us out of the army of your enemies. You have brought us into your own family, into your throne room. You overshadow us with grace all because of Jesus. Thank you that because of Jesus, we now have hope. We know that in the future, you will finish this thing you have started. You will finish our salvation. You've already done the heavy lifting. We can count on you to finish it. And thank you, Lord, that we have hope and glory, that for all eternity we will be perfect, all things will be right. The pain and suffering and disappointment of this life will be a distant memory. We will know glory for all eternity, all because of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he took our punishment in our place. Thank you that out of love, out of the ultimate expression of love, he jumped on the grenade that was meant for us. He took the punishment that we deserved so that we could be right with you, so that we could be made right for all eternity. Thank you for the peace and hope that we have through the sacrifice of your son. Thank you that you loved us so much that you gave him on our behalf. We praise you and thank you for that, Lord. And we pray for your help, your grace today, your favor today to help us become truly grateful people. We pray, Lord, that even in the disappointments and difficulties of life, still that in gratitude we would have peace and hope because of what you have done for us. Thank you for the gift of your son in whose name we pray, amen.